Welcome to the Go Bucket Yourself podcast. I'm Deb. And I'm Chris. We've traded in the ordinary and predictable to discover what the path of authenticity, adventure, meaning, and connection might look like. We're parents of two wonderful young ladies. We're partners, travel bugs, co-creators, and early retirees that stepped away from predictable paychecks to live our bucket list lives. In this podcast, we share stories of people who are navigating the sometimes messy middle stages of life and attempting to come out the other side having led a meaningful and authentic life while steering clear of a midlife crisis if we can help it. In season three of the Go Bucket Yourself podcast, we're talking about rewriting your story. We're taking lessons from our guests and ourselves to serve as inspiration to help you make your next big leap into the extraordinary. Thank you so much for joining us. And now on to today's episode. Today, we're talking with Jordan Grummet, aka Doc G. I pulled this really brief bio from your website, um, Doc. It says, Doc G was an internal medicine physician when he discovered the personal finance community through a book called The White Coat Investor. Since then, he has left clinical practice to pursue his passion for deep conversations about life and money. I wanted to make sure I read that because I love the end of that bio. That's an amazing thing maybe as an answer if someone asks what do you do but I want to add a little bit to it because after reading your book that you just published um, I know that you were also uh, very intricately involved with palliative or hospice care um, towards the end of of that career or former life and I want to also add that my most memorable introduction of you was your economy speech at the first year of economy. Um, Me being a former teacher, uh, elementary teacher sitting in the audience, just like weeping as you (laughs) gave your really unique performance, I would call it. I think it was like um, spoken word or almost like a rap, but I was picturing you as this little tiny Jordan. So, um, anyway, thank you so much for being here. We're so excited to dig into, um, this whole idea that you're sharing in your book with you today. Thank you for having me. That economy speech was a lot of fun, but it was exactly that. I looked at it as a performance, as if I was acting out a role. Uh, But it was wonderful because it gave me a chance to tell some of my unique story. Yeah, definitely unique. And um, it's out there available, I think, for everyone to see on YouTube. So we can link to that in our show notes. As I was reading your book, Taking Stock... Um, I was reminded of this Michael Singer quote that I wanted to share to sort of lead into my first question, if you don't mind. He says, it is truly a great cosmic paradox that one of the best teachers in all of life turns out to be death. No person or situation could ever teach you as much as death has taught you, has to teach you. While someone could tell you that you are not your body, death shows you. While someone could remind you of the insignificance of the things that you cling to, death takes them all away in a second. While people can teach you that men and women of all races are equal and that there is no difference between the rich and the poor, death instantly makes us all the same. So I think your book would agree with that in some ways and maybe a little bit of it disagree, but I was reminded of that because so much of your book is inspired by your work in hospice and this time in people's life when they're faced with death. And um, 
I have a bit of a connection to that myself. And in realizing when you're faced at this moment, there's actually a bit of simplicity that comes with it, right? Um, and so I wonder if you might speak to that, how, what death might show us and teach us about a, a simpler life or simplifying all these things that we that might be causing us angst or, or trouble. Um, death kind of tends to simplify that for, for us. Do you have anything to share about that? So death is the great clarifier, right? So it is one of those ways, one of those times in our lives where we can be utterly clear and certain about what we want. It allows us to drop all the societal pressures, the personal pressures, the family pressures. What I find in dealing with the dying, which I do all the time as a hospice doctor, is for once people are free to think about their true wants and needs, And so that's really the biggest question, maybe the biggest gift of knowing that death offers us this clarification. Maybe we could be doing that sooner. Maybe we could start letting go of all that junk that's clouding our minds, that's keeping us from doing what we want to do, including on some level worrying about our finances and start thinking about what is truly meaningful and purposeful to us. The problem with being at that moment when you're given a terminal diagnosis and told that you have weeks or months to live and having that clarification is you don't have the power of time to start realizing some of those things and start living that life to the extent that you could if you had that epiphany much earlier. Yeah, that's one of the things. And we've talked about this a little bit on on the Go Book It Yourself podcast, but I'm, I'm, I'm enamored with or a student of or excited about um, the ancient Roman Stoics, and one of the, the the main tenets they have is to memento mori, like remember death, you know, and it's, I have a, I'm not great at putting it into words, like how, how that rings true to me, but thankfully you wrote a book, Taking Stock, um, <laughs> uh, so the, it, it does help, but what, what I want to try to tease out of that is that, um, yeah, it gives us the example while while we are healthy, young, whatever you want to call it, like we are not facing death maybe right in the, in the, in the, the windshield, but we are, we are given this opportunity now to where we can think about at some day, someday we will die. And that's what I love about, I guess, um, when I've heard you speak doc or reading this book now, um, we have this opportunity while we're alive, while we're healthy to, to take stock, you know, quite literally of what life means to us by using something like death as a reminder that um, we don't have all of the time. We are all facing some level of a ticking time bomb, but we don't have to look at it in a morbid way. How would you, like, how do you, uh, I mean, you, you do it well in the book, but how, what's the, the, the summarized version of how can people like take that, that philosophy or that idea of using death as, as a wake-up call or a reminder in their everyday lives? So we are dying from the day we are born, but we don't like to think about it. And we go to stupendous heights in order not to think about it. And one of the ways we do that is we take those most important things to us and we put them aside. The reason why is most of them, the things we really care about, most of them are difficult. Mm -hmm. Most of them are scary. Most of them hold up the option of possibly failing, which would be very hard on our identities. So instead of dealing with those things, we really focus on the simple, right? What can we focus, whether it's a job title, whether it's our finances, there are all these things we can focus on 
because to not focus on them means that life is finite. And to think about life being finite means that we may not reach our goals and we might get to the end of life and not do those things that are important to us. It's too hard, too scary to do that. So instead we put it off. When we say, I'm going to think about death and keep that close, when we live by memento mori, what we're saying is, I'm going to keep the knowledge that death is around the corner with me. So that urge to put off all these important things, that urge to not face the fear and how finite life is, instead of running away, we face it head on. And so that's what happened when I became a hospice doctor and had to listen to this patient after patient after patient tell me what they regret about life. It made me realize that death is a process just like life is a process and it's constantly occurring. But instead of being scared of that, why can't that propel us to give us the confidence to go do those things we're scared of, those things that are meaningful to us? And so I think we really have to flip the script on this one. And instead of being fearful, we need to feel some sense of control over it. And I would say the same thing for money. You know, what do we tell people over and over and over again about money? They fear it, so they don't want to deal with it. But what happens when we flip that script and instead say, no, money is a tool. It's a tool that you have some power over. And let's start exerting that power to build a better life. I kind of say the same thing with death. Why can't we start using that knowledge to help us live better today? Yeah. Sometimes I feel like too, because uh, I, yes, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And then I find myself facing this conundrum because I'm a very contrarian, like I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking of idea A and then I'm always trying to shoot holes in idea A and come up with an idea B. And so one of the, the things that you do uh, is, to, is talk about like YOLO versus delayed gratification. And that's exactly like with the Go Bucket Yourself podcast, the idea of a bucket list. The concept is you will not live forever. So what's something that you want to do or achieve or accomplish in this life? And but at the same time, I see a lot of people that are that are YOLOing where it's like, damn, you, you might think a little about the future. You might delay gratification a little bit. So how do you how do you um, separate that kind of or how do you deal with that conundrum of, you know, the YOLO versus delayed gratification and let me point out, this is probably one of the most difficult decisions we will make day in and day out for the rest of their lives. Should we spend money today or should we take that money, put it away, defer gratification, let it compound in the stock market or in real estate and fund our retirement? It's a difficult question because it's going to be different for each person. Now, when I talk about YOLO, I'm not talking about taking your money and spending it on something that isn't important to you and just spending to spend. What I'm talking about is the fact that it is true. From day to day, we are faced with this idea that maybe we could spend money on a vacation and that money would be well spent. It would build a sense of purpose in us. It would create memories that would compound over time and have great value to us as we got older. So I'm not talking about frivolity here. Even if we're talking about buying a car, you may love cars. So cars might have a lot of meaning for you. So spending money today on a car might be a very reasonable thing. So YOLO isn't a bad thing on the outset, but if we YOLO all the time, we're going to end up with no money for our future. So the way I like to parse this one out is you know, if we knew exactly when we were going to die, we wouldn't have this problem, right? If we knew we were going to die in 20 years or 10 years or 30 years, we could then plan our spending so that we'd have very little by the end or whatever we wanted to leave to our kids or what have you. Since we don't know that, we need a proxy. For me, that proxy is what scares us most. Mm. And I think if you can ask yourself this question, you can start toggling that continuum. So what scares you most? Are you afraid that you're going to die young and healthy 
and never get a chance to use your wealth, right? So you didn't YOLO enough, or are you afraid you're going to live long, run out of money and die broke, meaning you didn't defer gratification enough. Mm -hmm. If you can help decide what scares you most, you then can make decisions for today. And I'll give you the example of my father because he's a perfect example of this. My father was a physician. He died at the age of 40, suddenly, unexpectedly. But I'll tell you, he always thought he was going to die young. And he told my mom this when he got married. So my father lived like someone who was afraid that they were going to die young and never enjoy their wealth. So what does that mean? So if you make... $100,000 a year and $50,000 goes to expenses. You have no choice that $50,000 is spoken to. You have $50,000 left over. The question is, what are you going to do with that $50,000? If you're afraid that you're going to die young, maybe you take 10 of that 50,000 left over and put it towards deferred gratification, retirement, financial independence, whatever you want to call it. Not as much as we'd like, but you're still building a financial framework. And then you take that other 40%, especially if you're worried about dying young, and you use that to YOLO today. So let's play this out and see what happens over the years. If you're like my father and you died at 40, then you lived pretty well. You spent that $40,000 every year on YOLO and, and you really enjoyed yourself. You used your wealth. Let's say you're wrong, right? Yeah. You're wrong. You don't die young. Well, what's the worst thing that happens? You're still putting that 10,000 a year away for financial independence. You might not be able to retire till 60 or 70, but guess what? Every year you're still spending that $40,000 on YOLO. YOLO. You might still be working, but you're probably living a pretty good Mm -hmm. life. And so for someone who's worried about dying early, that's where you fall in the continuum. Switch that up and talk about me. Unlike my father, I've always felt like I was going to live a long life. So for me, I was most worried about dying to an old age and running out of money and dying broke. So for me, it was exact opposite. If 50,000 went to my spending needs and I had 50,000 left over, I would take 40,000 and put it towards deferred gratification, get it in the market, let it compound so I could retire early. And then I would only use 10,000 for YOLO. Again, we can walk this out in the same way I did the other example. Here's the worst case scenario. If that's what you do and you defer all that gratification, you only spend 10,000 on YOLO today and you die young, then you kind of lose the game, right? That's the worst of all scenarios. But two things, one, you still spent some money on YOLO, so that's good. And the other is you had all that joy of building up and planning towards your financial independence retire early. So it probably wasn't so horrible. If you were right, however, and you put that $40,000 towards deferred gratification, that will grow in the stock market. You can retire early and you can spend the rest of your time on meaning and purpose and identity and making connections and doing all those wonderful things. So how do we do it? We have to ask ourselves that question, figure out what scares us most, and then toggle. For some people, that's going to be saving 20000 and spending 30000 For other people, it's going to be putting 5000 to YOLO and 45000 to deferred gratification. Everyone's going to be different. But until we start asking that basic question, the best proxy we have to knowing when we're going to die, uh, we can't start deciding. And uh, it's a really important question because all of us are going to face it. I love that you're talking about questions because it was a theme I noticed as I went through your book. And it's something that feels really um, important to me in that I can't tell you what to do with your money or anyone else listening, right? Um, But you can get a lot of clarity if you start asking yourself questions and not just behaving from uh, uh, unconscious or knee-jerk place, right? So if I'm YOLOing just 
without even realizing what I'm putting my money to, it may not really be aligned with my true authentic purpose or values or whatever. But if I take the time to pause and ask the questions, then I get to a much more aligned place, most likely. Um, And so your book has all sorts of good questions throughout, which I I really appreciate. Um, And I think if I could just add a little tiny tidbit about this confrontation with death, uh, we talk about it in this like fearful way, right? Like we're so afraid to talk about it that we don't talk about it. And, and when we do think about it, we are thinking about what we're afraid of. But what I found in my own confrontation, and I think your book walks through people through a way to get to this place with it, is a lot of peace. Knowing that um, sometimes death is the right time, right? It comes at the right time for most of us. I witnessed it with my granddad. And with me, there were several diagnoses that made me like question my longevity. And what I realized was death wasn't the bad thing or the enemy. There was so much peace as long as I was living aligned to my true purpose of being here. And with that came so much clarity, just like with your questions, right? So once we get to the bottom of that, that peaceful, less fearful place, we can get to some true answers about what we really want. And it may be a car or a vacation, and it may not be a car or a vacation or a house. You know, each of us has a different answer to that. So um, I just... I, I want to say that I really appreciate that and maybe give you a chance to share some of these deeper questions that are a good starting point for people. You share a lot in your book, but for people to confront this time in their life and get really clear about what is important to them or their purpose here. I want to start by saying your statement, what you just, the beginning part of this question really kind of gets to the bottom of the problem most likely we'll have very little control over how and when we die. I hate to tell you that, but Mm -hmm. after being a a doctor for decades and being a hospice doctor for a number of years, you're going to have very little control over that. You can worry about it if you want, but it probably won't change anything. And the truth of the matter is the act of dying is a lot more comfortable than I ever thought it was Mm -hmm. until I started practicing hospice medicine. So let me tell you that. But what you can change is how you live. And that's really where I want to start people at. So what are these important questions? I mean, the reason why personal finance is so difficult is because we're trying to give one set of guidelines to everyone and everyone is different. So the advice we give really depends on starting at the beginning. So the important questions are, what is purposeful to you? How do you identify? And what are those connections in life you want to make? We have to start with those questions. And the reason why is if we start to give financial information to people and don't think about these questions, we're not going to really be able to titrate that financial advice to the unique people. So you're going to have one person who, like me, got tired in medicine, got burned out and wanted to accumulate wealth as fast as I could so I could retire and live a life of purpose. The advice you give me is going to be a lot different than someone who comes into medicine passionate, starts practicing and realizes that every day feels good because I'm doing what I love doing and I would do it even if I wasn't getting paid. 
the advice you give that person is going to be very different than the advice you give the burned out person. The thing that ties this all together is when we go back to purpose, identity, connections, those are the big questions. If we can answer those questions, we then can start looking logically at how to build a financial framework, a financial life around those questions so that our finances fulfill our needs. Because money is not a goal, it's a tool. So how do we use that tool to live a better life? And so I think we have to start with the basics. Put the money aside, put the financial worries aside for just a moment And let's really think about who we are, who we want to be, what's important to us. What are those things we're going to regret not spending time and energy doing on our deathbeds if we ignore this part of our lives and just set it aside and put it off to later? Yeah. One of the things that, um, that I also enjoyed was the the parable of the three brothers that you shared, because then you give, you're giving three stories of three different approaches so that either whatever chapter you're in in life, or maybe this, this stays with you throughout your life, but um, it kind of gives the example of the three brothers and how brother the eldest brother compared to the middle brother compared to the youngest brother, how they might a- approach this, uh, this thing called life and <laughs> how to live well and you know that, the, the difference on, on that spectrum. I wonder if you could maybe briefly walk us through that, that parable of the three brothers. Um, I think, you know, the, the oldest brother is kind of the front loading brother, right? Look kind of like what you were talking about earlier. So that's key because when we get to this point where we have a better understanding of our purpose, identity connections, we still need to build that financial framework. And that's where the parable of the three brothers comes in. These are three different archetypes towards financial independence, but they're not only about financial independence, They're about careers. So the three brothers are the eldest, the middle, and the youngest. A quick thumbnail sketch. The eldest brother has the shortest path. And when I say shortest path, I'm really talking mostly about career. They don't like work at all. They don't feel a sense of purpose, identity, or connections in work. So they want to get done with work as soon as possible. Defer gratification quite a bit so that they can retire and then live a life of purpose. This is like that traditional financial independence, retire early practitioner, the fire person of old. They grind it out. They front load the sacrifice. They get to some net worth number that they call financial independence. That might be 25 times yearly spending or a safe withdrawal rate of 4%. You guys know all what that stuff is. And then they retire and live the life they want to live. This is a great path for some But we found that as the fire movement has evolved, younger people don't want to put off purpose, identity, connections. They want to live a purposeful life now. So there's some other ways to get to financial independence. The middle brother is the brother of passive income or side hustles. They define financial independence different than the eldest brother, right? The eldest brother is based on a net worth. The middle brother really defines financial independence based on side hustle or passive income How much do they make each month? And can that month cover their spending needs? If it does, then they're financially independent. Middle brothers might come to financial independence much faster than eldest brothers, but their path is actually longest because they have to maintain some type of career. Whereas the eldest brother retires right when they hit that net worth number, the middle brother is going to have to continue maintaining that passive income or side hustle income, maybe into their 60s or 70s, depending on if they do put some extra money away and allow it to compound and defer gratification. And finally, their youngest brothers, this is most radical of all. If the goal is to put purpose, identity, and connections first, if you can find a job, a passion play, 
in which you're doing what you love doing. You would do it even if you weren't making money, but that job happens to cover your monthly needs. Yes, you're going to need some disability insurance and probably some life insurance and some other things, but pretty much you're financially independent from day one, fastest path to financial independence. But I always say it's actually the longest path Mm. because unless you save extra on top of everything else, you're going to be working till 60 or 70. The interesting thing is you're going to love your work. So when you get to the end of your path at 60 and 70, you might do what the youngest brother does in the parable, which is turn around and start walking back the way they came. You're never going to quit working because that's what gives you purpose The archetypes give you a way forward. They give you a way to build purpose, identity, and connections into a financial framework so that you can then start living the life you want to live today. Or at least if you're going to not live the life you want to live today, you're doing it very intentionally and planning for when you can do what you want to do. Of course, life is not that simple. There are probably many, many more paths than just the paths of the three brothers. And the truth of the matter is often we may pivot at one time or another in our career from one path to the next. When I was growing up, my father was an oncologist, a physician. He died when he was 40 and I was seven. I wanted to be just like him. I didn't care what it paid. That was my identity and purpose. I started as a youngest brother, but when I got to medicine and burned out, All of a sudden, I realized I want to make as much money as possible, grind it out so that I can quit, retire early, and then pursue purpose. I turned into an eldest brother from a youngest brother. Mm. But even as an eldest brother, I started doing medical side hustles, one of which was hospice, which ended up being what I liked doing anyway. So in a sense, I was doing some side hustles. I became a middle brother. So the point is you might incorporate all of these, but if we don't start trying to figure out how to build that financial framework around who we want to be, we're not going to live that life we want to live. And we ultimately will have regrets one day when we find out time is finite, Mm. that we have a limited amount of time left and we never were thoughtful about such things. Yeah. I like how, I like how you shared those examples of like how you've exhibited those, those various brothers, um, you know, mindsets or archetypes throughout your life. Um, very similarly to, I've got a dear friend that uh, I came across the idea of financial independence and I decided to go down the road of real estate and he started to, you know, follow the same path because he too was like, oh, I think that's what I want to be able to do as well. And then he got to, he got to a point where he's like, actually, I'm really enjoying my job. And just with a couple tweaks, yeah. um, I'm, yeah. I think I could even love it even more and could do this into perpetuity. And, uh, and so I was like, on one hand, I'm sad because I'm like, dude, I want you to, you know, have all this free, the same free time I have yeah. so that we can go do all this stuff together. But this, the other time too, is like, wow, not only, yeah, that's, that's just amazing that he has that clarity now of, of he doesn't want to, the, you know, the RE part, he doesn't want to retire early. Uh, but he also now has, you know, a very nice, um, bit of a passive income or residual income that when, and if that changes, he's he's well down the road of, of where he needs to be. So, yeah, I think that's, that's good. Sometimes we get a little too dichotomous or we get a little too, too, uh, you know, it's like, Oh, we, we like Mr. Money Mustache and how his approach was. And then we just think, well, everything that he did, we must do, even though he's stopped saying that for quite a while. Um, but we sometimes get a little too, yeah, like I said, dichotomous in, in our, which is a good theme of your book doc, because you recognize all the grays, right? Like less black mm-hmm. and white with the, mm-hmm. with YOLO versus delayed gratification with so many themes in your book. And 
I, I think it would be good to dig into purpose, identity, and connection a little more to tease those out. But before, maybe we should start with this um, idea that you sort of begin your book with, which is enough, which might be the f- foundation of understanding what you want out of purpose, identity, and connection. Um, you, you do have a really good story of comparison with Charlie and Connor, both um, hospice patients. And so um, I wonder if you could share with us a little bit about this idea of enough, like either not having enough or not knowing when we do have enough. Your, your, your book illustrates that pretty well. Right. So the story of Charlie and Connor, Charlie was a, actually started as his wife was a patient of mine. She had dementia. She lived in a nursing home. They spent all of their money down covering her nursing home care. They even had to do what's called a Medicaid divorce so that they could separate their assets so that he wouldn't have to put all of his money towards her care. When she died, he was bereft. He had very little. He had a small apartment. He was living off of Social Security. And he eventually succumbed to congestive heart failure. In his last days, he was in this interesting place where he had all the love in the world. In many ways, he would have reached the top of what we call Maslow's pyramid, right? A basic pyramid of needs, which starts with the simple things like enough money and food and the basics and security and builds all the way up to self-actualization. In many ways, he had self-actualization. He had the love of his life. He had kids. He had a lot of things, but he didn't have any material wealth. Compare that to Connor, who had all the material wealth in the world, a multi-billion dollar conglomerate, which he owned and created. But as he got close to death, he found that his family was much more worried about his business than him. He could afford the hospital wing that he eventually died in, but he didn't have a modicum of love or that kind of feeling of connectedness that we all think of as at the top of Maslow's pyramid. So the point being is that we connect money to enough too often, and we think that it's the major thing that we use to monitor whether we have enough. And the truth of the matter is there are people who are broke who completely understand enough and live a life of what we call self-actualization. And then there's people who have way more than enough when it comes to money, but are not in when it comes to connections and love and all these other important things. So Maslow talks about a pyramid or triangle. My argument is that we have to flatten that, right? We have to look at our economic needs, but not above or beyond more in parallel with our needs for connection and purpose and identity and all of these other important things. We need to flatten that pyramid and work on them all together at the same time. These are all money is a tool and it's one of many tools. And we sometimes forget that. Right. So it's a very important tool and it can buy us the ability to free our time up to do other things with it. But we also have the tools of compassion and skills and knowledge and relationships. And some people have youth. Right. When you're Mm -hmm. young, all of these are tools, too. And we can't forget that those are very powerful tools that we can live use to live a good life now. So when it comes to enough, I think we have to get rid of this idea that enough is defined as some monetary amount. And we have to remember that money is one part of enough, but one of many parts, Mm. and that we should concentrate on all of them equally. And, And in some ways, it feels good to know that even if you don't have enough money, that doesn't stop you from working on those other parts of your life and reaching some modicum of what Maslow would call self actualization, whether the money's there or not. So good. Yeah. Yeah. 
I'm part of this community called Front Row Dads, and and one of the things I really enjoy about it, there's there's like six pillars, and they would all fall into Maslow's hierarchy um, in some way. And the nice part about that is because I'm a very prescriptive. I like to have things kind of spelled out for me or planned out for me. And the nice part is that every two months, like we switch the uh, the, the theme that we're working on. So one 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 period of two months, we are working on being a better father. The other two period period of two months, we're working on our health and becoming very, you know, just very intentional with that time. That doesn't mean you just, you know, eat Twinkies uh, 10 months <laughs> out of the year and then, you know, work out and, and eat good food, you know, two months out of the year. But I kind of like that approach of, uh, if you're going to flatten out Maslow's hierarchy, if you're going to try to, to, to self-actualize and you're going to work on your, your finances and your food and having all the other uh, things on your on your way to that self-actualization, um, trying to balance those things out. Because at least for me, I, I can't like try to work on all things at once. Is that something similar to either what you suggest or what you do yourself, Doc? Or, or do you have a different approach than that? I think I made the mistake of working on the money too much and Mm. then had to circle back and work in those other things. So I did a lousy job at the beginning of it. And that's kind of my goal partially with this book is to remind people that they don't have the weight on the money piece. In fact, you're going to be behind the eight ball. If you wait on the money piece, start working on the rest of all that stuff, because ultimately money is only to serve all those other things, right? You can look at the rest of those important things, our health, our relationships, our sense of purpose, all of those have meaning. When you look at money, money has no meaning by itself. It only has meaning in a sense that it frees us up to do those other things. Um, So I would almost argue those other things are more important. The money part is just important enough that we can live that life we want to live. I think another um, issue that gets in the way, whether people retire early or retire late or just really grind it out at a job they don't like because they don't know what they would do if they didn't do it or they don't know what enough is, right? Um, I think it's this idea of identity and purpose and how we tie those things together so closely. So for me, leaving my career in teaching and trying to get healthy, I had to learn how to untangle all of that, right? So for me, it sounded like, um, I am not my job. I am not Mm -hmm. my body. I am not these other roles that I play, or maybe for some people it's, I am not my house or I am not the clothes that I wear. And so I wonder if you might speak to those two, because they're such key elements to your work, purpose and identity and what those have to do with a healthy life in your opinion and how they might be related to each other or separate from each other. So I think purpose and identity are the goals. It's actually what we're using all of our tools to achieve. In a sense, it's the opposite of regrets. When I hear people tell me at the end of life, they have regrets. It's because they didn't live a life of more purpose, identity and connections So that's our goal, actually, is to live a life full of purpose, identity, and connections. And the bigger question, which I get often asked, is, well, how the heck do you do that, right? And so the dying have been really instructive, especially when it comes to purpose, the thing that people really struggle with. With the dying, we do something called a life review, which is a structured course of questions that actually get us to having people really look at their life and what was important and not important and what they regretted and what they want to do if they have extra time, et cetera, et cetera. 
a very simple version of that, which is something I use a visualization that I have young people do just to start thinking about these things is when it comes to purpose, ask yourself if while you were laying on your deathbed, bemoaning your life and saying, I really regret that I never had the energy, courage or time to, and then you kind of fill in that blank. It's a great visualization to start thinking about, okay, what is really purposeful to me? There are other questions that help too. Like I often ask people like, when was the last time you woke up in the middle of the night excited to buy an idea and you couldn't fall back asleep? Mm. Like, did you pursue that idea? Like these are our little whisperings to us about what's important and are we following up with them? So those are two good questions. I think we can at least start with our purpose work. In the book, there are some exercises that help you do a little bit more deeper dive into these things, but that's a good way to start. When it comes to identity, my favorite exercise is to ask yourself or say the statement, I am, and then fill in the blank. And that's something you have to do over and over again. When I first started doing this, I'd say, I am. And the answer was a doctor, Mm -hmm. which is funny because I don't even identify that way anymore. It was just my profession. It was part of the reason I was so upset is that I wasn't actually getting down to my true identity. When you do that more and more, you get to family relationships, right? I am a father, a son, a spouse. Of course, those are titles and those are things that are important to you, but it doesn't really make you unique in that sense. And so you go further. For me, eventually, I got to the fact that I'm a podcaster, a writer, a blogger, and it all coalesced into I'm a communicator. And that was an identity that really fit for me. So what I tell people is ask yourself that question. I am fill in the blank and be aspirational. Like not only who are you today, but who do you want to be in the future? And if that doesn't work, I say ask friends and family. Like sometimes they're have unique insight. Who do they see you as? And so when you start doing that purpose and identity work, you start getting in touch with who you are and the connections naturally follow from there. So when I started identifying more as a communicator, as opposed to a physician, something that never fit me comfortably, I started going to these conferences for personal finance and meeting writers and bloggers and podcasters. And I would find that five minutes with these people and I felt closer to them than decades of my spending time with my colleagues, other doctors and healthcare workers, because it wasn't what made me passionate. Um, So I had found my people and it was Mm -hmm. amazing that when I was in touch with my purpose and identity, the connections just naturally followed. Yeah, no, that's, that's so, that's so true for, for myself as well. Like uh, once I started and in, not even in the, the sense of like, I feel that that connected so much to either being a podcaster or a writer or a communicator but just in that environment, um, it just feel, it felt like either you're around people that, that have a, a solid idea of their identity or they're at least questioning their identity. And there's so many uh. of us in this world that, that, does, that don't feel like that. You know, you can either tell right yeah. away, like, I can't even, like, this person seems so fake. Like, I can't even tell who they yeah. are or what they yeah. are or, yeah. you know, or, yeah, and, and all of that. And so... So yeah, I, I agree. Like the, having those connections, there were there were times. Uh, I think Camp Five, FinCon. At, at FinCon, I felt like just you know like this little blip, you know, in the <clears> sea <throat> of these people that that have done all that. But I just felt it so welcomed and invited uh, right away, even though I was a stranger to everybody in the room. And uh, and yeah, so it's it's very powerful to to get together with other people to do that. I think another thing that um, where I wanted to go with this too is as we're talking about asking ourselves questions rather than just taking someone else's advice or following someone else's story and script, um, that may seem like very easy to do, but I just find so many people don't do it. Like there's so like, I know so many people that read so many books and never take 
a single step of action, like beautiful words, beautiful uh, ideas, advice, whatever you want to call it, and never, you know, implement. And so I love that about your book is that at the end of each chapter, there are questions to ask. So, um, So you've at least helped the reader by having those questions so they don't have to come up with it on their own. So I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard. Like this is hard work, figuring out your sense of purpose and identity. It's not easy and it's painful. And sometimes you have come up against societal expectations, familial expectations, or even your own expectations that no longer suit you. And again, it does something that we don't necessarily want to do is it makes us realize life is finite. So I think this process of going after our real wants and needs also makes us realize that we may get to the end and not get there. And that freaks us out. So it's much easier to say, oh, forget all that. I'm going to just go after this next Mm -hmm. job title. Forget all that. I'm going to go after this next net worth goal. And in the book, I call that the money mind meld. It's this idea that we let these shimmery, unimportant things blind us to thinking about the most important things because they're hard and scary and they remind us that the end of life is around the corner and no one wants to do that. And so we put it off. And so it's so easy to read all these self-help books. It's so easy not to do these things, even though we have all the best intentions when we set out to. Yeah. So we kind of dug into identity and purpose and, um, From a very selfish perspective, I would love to have a conversation about connection with someone who formerly identified as a doctor, Um, because that is a big part of your book, and I I get the feeling that that's a big part of finding meaning in your life, and so um, I just want to give you the chance to talk about connection and mental, emotional health, as well as physical health from your perspective. So... I grew up with this idea that being a doctor was what I was meant to be. My father died when he was 40. I was seven. He was a doctor. I was going to be just like him. And for a long time in a healthy way, that made a good sense of purpose and identity for me. The problem is the connection piece never came along with it. And I didn't understand why. So I, I, did all the things I was supposed to do. I went through college. I went to medical school. I did residency But that connection piece was never there. And it took me a long time to realize that I didn't fit. And that was not something I ever expected. This was actually the probably the thing I'm best in the world at doing. I was a good physician, if I may say so myself, not being arrogant. But this was something I was very, very good at. And it was innate. And I was good at talking to people and figuring out the things they needed but it wasn't really filling my soul. I didn't feel connected when I did it to other people or even to myself. And it was a very unhealthy way of being specifically. I had trouble making those relationships, right? I didn't have lots of doctor friends and it was only as when I started identifying as a communicator that I was able to have these deeper relationships. Um, And so in a sense, it wasn't healthy. It wasn't emotionally healthy. I was trying to be someone I wasn't, and therefore I wasn't relating to the people who truly did identify in that way. Um, And I think as physical health goes, tends to go where your emotional health is, right? So you tend to be physically unhealthy when you're emotionally unhealthy. So for me, not finding my place in the world probably led to things like anxiety and stress and all those other things that cause cause physical problems. 
I was lucky enough in the sense to have accrued enough money to have the luxury to slow down financially and really start thinking about these things and finding my place in the world. Not everyone has as much of that tool as I had. Hopefully the people are struggling like I was, but have not as much money, have other tools like youth or connections or family or passions or other things that help them make that transition. But I knew that I had to step away from those things I wasn't connected to anymore, but I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I just started getting rid of the things about being a doctor I didn't like. And I was left with hospice work, which I still do to this day, which I did feel very connected to. So even within that identity that I wasn't embracing, there was at least a part that still felt true. Um, I think we're just happier, right? I think Mm -hmm. we're happier when we connect with other human beings. I think we're emotionally and physically more healthy. And it's really hard to do that if you are not connected in some way to your own purpose and identity. At least it wasn't easy for me. Yeah, we did a we did a book study on a book called The Power of Meaning last year, or last season on on the Go Book Yourself podcast. And one of the the key elements that she talks about in the four pillars of, of living a, a meaningful life, a good life, a, a whole life was connection and just how powerful that can be. Um, because for a, for a lot of us, I think in this day and age, you know, we're more connected in many ways than we've ever been. But at the same time, uh, that's what I think true loneliness is. That's what I've heard other people describe true loneliness is, is when you're surrounded by people, but you don't feel connected to yeah. any of them. So it's yeah. not about the quantity of, of those people around you. It is, you know, it's definitely about that, that quality or, or being able to, um, you know, identify with, with, with your people. Yeah. And when you're not connected to yourself, it's really hard to connect to other people, right? So until you have a better sense of who you are and what's important to you, it's going to be hard to make those outer connections. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say. I found for myself when I wasn't truly aligned with my, I didn't know myself. I didn't know uh, my own wants and desires or my own identity and purpose aside from like what I had built up that didn't feel true. There's no true connection. It's not authentic, right? It feels fake mm-hmm. or there's no depth to it. So yeah, very good. That's all. I was going to say the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. I, and one of the, one of the things I love too about as you're, as you're concluding and wrapping up the book and as we start to, you know, wrap up our conversation here, you have a, you know, a, a quote, um, or a saying, you know, that we are dying from the day we are born. And then, um, which is, you know, an inevitable truth. It is very logical and, and pragmatic and all of that. But I th- you also end with, we are living until the day we die, live well. And, um, you know, while that could, without any other context, that could just seem very simple and easy, uh, I think it's, it's very powerful. Like <laughs> living well um, is something very, very yeah, like I said, powerful. What is it? What does it look like to you right now, Doc? Like, what does living well either look like or feel like, or or what's this chapter of living well for for you? Right. So, the point is, in this whole book, we're really talking about life. We're doing it through the lens of death because it's a great clarifier. But in a sense, we're really talking about give, living a good life. So people sometimes read the title of this book and think it's going to be depressing, and the idea is actually not at all to be depressing. It's in fact, this idea of building the life you want to live. So what does living a good life look to me now? I would say that I now base that quote unquote happiness or feeling content on two things really, right? One is more what fills my days and the other is more an attitude. All right. So what fills my days? 
Happiness, happiness to me is what I call the climb, right? Or a series of climbs. What that is, is activities that I do that I enjoy doing. So in this case, let's talk about podcasting. I love podcasting. My most favorite moment of podcasting is when I sit down, turn the mics on, and I start the process of interviewing someone. Regardless of what comes of that podcast, that is my favorite thing to do. So to be part of one of my climbs, it has to be something in which I totally enjoy the process. On the other hand, I love the idea that there is some incremental improvement to be made. So when I look at my podcast, I could say I really want a million downloads a month. Probably isn't going to happen. Probably I'm going to get upset when I hit my head against the wall trying to make it happen and I can't. So that's not a great goal and it'll take away from the joy of the process. But I can set much smaller goals that are much more achievable and that'll add the joy to me like in the process. So I can say, I'd like to add 25 new listeners a month or 50 new listeners a month, something much more obtainable. And so I think happiness is building out and spending your time doing a a series of climbs, which you enjoy doing in which you can feel some incremental gain at. But even if you don't get to that mountaintop, that goal that you really thought you wanted to, you'd still feel like it was time well spent. And that's what I really believe financial independence has given me the power to do. It's freed up all those time slots I have in the rest of my life. And so I could fill them with these climbs and that's the goal. That's happiness to me. There's another part to happiness, and it's it's a little more abstract. I found, in general, there are two types of people in this world, and one type is happy and one isn't. The mm-hmm. types of people who are happy are people who look at their past and see it as magical in which they were a hero, and they dealt with difficult things, right? And this happens, I've seen this in people who've had multiple family members die and have been through the most horrendous things to people who've had minor things like a pet dying, but people who are happy tend to look at their past and see it as magical in themselves as a hero. People who are unhappy tend to look back at life and see themselves as a victim. So I see happiness as building in a series of climbs to fill my time and also giving myself the grace of looking at my past and seeing myself as a hero who dealt with magical things that have made me into who I am today. And to me, that's happiness. That's the closest approximation I can come to of what it feels like to live a really good life. Mm. Yeah. And to be clear, we can change that narrative, right? That's not. Oh yeah. Static. Oh yeah. It's like, it's, it's all about giving yourself that grace. It's all about reinterpreting your past and being easier on yourself and seeing the beauty and the virtue as opposed to the struggle and the pain. What yeah. about you, Chris? What is a life lived well to you? Uh, yeah. So like, I guess in the specifics of, of what I'm trying to do in this chapter of life is, is trying to, to be more, um, be more than, than myself, uh, or be, think of, of the world outside of myself. I've spent a lot of time in my life, um, with the belief that, that I am important, not from like a, I guess a place of like, I'm more important than others, but I just focused a lot on myself and building, you know, taking care of myself, like self um, reliance was very big in the community I grew up in, my family and all of that. So it's a lot of time just like, hey, I'm going to, I'm a hard worker. I'm doing this. I don't need anyone else's help and all of that. And now I'm, I'm at a place where I, I've recognized that, that there's life is so much more magical when I'm, I'm worried about 
other things other than myself. And so to me, that looks like, um, volunteering, like this last couple, this last week I went and did some, some level of volunteering and I can recognize it's like a training wheels version of volunteering. You know, it's not like requiring all that much of me. I kind of get a little bit back on the backside, but it's like, I know it's you know, it's part of my climb of where I want to go. So living well means to me, like trying to be, uh, just, uh, trying to, to change, I guess, through habits, the routines, and maybe the limiting beliefs that I've accumulated over the years and trying to be a better servant to others and to the world in general. So that may sound lofty mm. and full of uh, bullshit or whatever, but uh, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I've found, I found actually that some of the happiest people have climbs that help other people, right? Yeah. So those climbs you aspire to when they have an effect on the world, when they improve the lives of the people around you, um, it's a really good way to build that into your life and kind of it's like a double dose of happiness because you're mm-hmm. doing something that's important to you that you feel like you're making progress at. But then on top of that, you're also affecting the world around you in good ways. And so that's uh, that's a very powerful thing to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why don't we go around the horn, Deb? What about you? What's living well to in for you? Well, what's coming up for me specifically right now is just... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm laughing before I say this word, but love. So like from a foundation, foundational perspective, like showing my body love by the food I put in it, the way that I move it, um, the, the thoughts that I allow myself to have throughout the day, the actions I take rather than from a place of control, like controlling myself, over controlling myself through those things or other people's perceptions or fear or shame or guilt or whatever. And in that way, I kind of fill myself up with so much love that it's able to spill out onto other people that I'm in relationship with, right? In a more responsive, less reactive way. So I'm able to extend that love outwardly. Wow. Nice. That's (laughs) the one, that's what I was thinking. So, yeah. And I like that too. And I'll tell you one of my pitfalls, especially when I was younger is I would concentrate on these things that I thought were going to change the whole wide world, right? That were going to affect millions and millions of people. And I found that took away from the joy of doing what I was doing. And nowadays I focus more on how can I affect those people directly around me and think about the ripple effect of those people you affect around you will affect other people. And as opposed to writing that most famous book or that Mm -hmm. most famous blog or being the most famous podcaster or having this reach to all these millions of people it actually feels a lot more peaceful to affect the people around you and know that that will ripple out into the rest of the world. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly how I feel about it too. Like I, um, I I picture myself with this torch and it's like, um, I'm not going to be some guy standing on top of a mountain where everybody's going to remember this person and all of that. I'm just carrying this torch for this little moment in time that I'm alive and I'm handing off to someone else and maybe yeah. they climb the mountain and maybe they're the ones that, you know, have the notoriety and the, and the, the legacy that, that extends for, for generations and generations. But, uh, it, yeah, yeah, that, that feels good to me as well. Like it doesn't put the weight of like, Oh, I have to write this amazing thing or be this, you know, podcaster that has millions of downloads, like you said. So, yeah. Well, Doc, um, as, as we're wrapping up here, one, one question we do like to ask every guest before the, they can slip away is um, if you have a bucket list, if you have a dream list, what's something 
on it that you're either in pursuit of. Uh, <laughs> it feels very fitting that you probably just wrapped one of those things up. And mm-hmm. so maybe you can talk about that or, or, um, but if there's something on your bucket list, you'd love to share with our audience, we'd love to hear it. So I've, I've, I've used this answer before, but it is my true bucket list, especially after writing this book. I would like to be interviewed by Terry Gross from NPR Fresh Air or interview her. Yeah. Because I think she is one of the best interviewers out there. And I find so much meaning and purpose in the art of the interview and having these amazing conversations. My bucket list forever and always will be one or the other either being interviewed by her or interviewing her for my podcast. I think that would just be fantastic. Awesome. Love it. And that, yeah. that is a huge bucket list item. Uh, just like most of the important things in my life, I may or may not do that, but I certainly can interview lots of interesting people mm-hmm. and, yeah. and fulfill parts of that bucket list without getting all the way there. And that's yeah. part of the joy. That's part of the joy of the climb. Sometimes is having such an audacious goal that you always can dream about it, even if you never get there. Right. So. Yeah, well, we have experienced the art of your interview process, and um, I must say you are amazing at it. So we are on the edge of our seats waiting for this moment, which I imagine will happen. (laughs) And if it doesn't, there are many of interesting people that you have interviewed on your podcast. So thank you for allowing us to do that with you today. It's been a really good conversation. Um, How would people connect with you or learn more about you or get your book? Uh, Yeah, share any, any way that you would like to have people reach out to you or get to know more about you. So the book is Taking Stock, A Hospice Doctor's Advice on Financial Independence, Building Wealth, and Living a Regret-Free Life. You can find that on Amazon, or you can find me and everything about me on jordangrummet.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com. There are links to the book there. There's also links to the three different types of content that I've ever created. The first is a medical blog, which I did from like 2005 to 2018. The link is there over a thousand posts. There is a link to my financial blog, diversify.com. And then finally, there's a link to what I spend most of my time doing, which is the earn and invest podcast. So that's earninvest.com or just go to jordangrummet.com. Very nice. good. Thank you. The thing uh, that I want to, I guess, conclude with besides saying thank you for being on our, on our, our podcast doc is this, this is a great book. Um, Taking stock is a great book to do in book club form. And I was just re-reminded of, of just the power of that. I haven't done a book club in a little while, but I was talking with someone over the weekend and, and I was like, Oh yeah, when we <laughs> got an interview with doc in a, a couple of days, but I thought I'd definitely mention that. So if you don't have a book club or if you're not part of a book club, that's fine. Just start one, <laughs> you know, find a few people that either are in the Phi community or in your, you know, world and yeah, I think this is a great one to read the chapters, go through the questions, because we've talked a lot about uh, how important it is to ask yourself these questions as, as, as important as it is to ask yourself those questions. It's super important in my mind um, to hold yourself and accountable to that. And the book club will kind of make you, you, you do that as well as then sharing that. I think there's just some refinement that happens. Like if you, if you just, you know, listen to an audio book, and you listen to the question and then you never really either write that down or share it with someone else. I think you lose some of the power that, that can come from those answers. So I highly uh, suggest that. Uh, I just thought I'd add that to the end there. And I'm happy to jump in. If you have a, you know, book club of, you know, more than five or 10 people, I'm happy to jump in on a zoom. Uh, you can just contact me at jordangrummet.com if you end up wow. looking at taking stock. So you could have a surprise 
author visit if you, you know, <laughs> awesome. surprise your book club members. Yeah. That's so generous. Very yeah. nice. Well, thank you so much, Doc. Thank you for having me. What does a life well-lived look like to you? That is both the question posed at the end of our conversation with Doc and the challenge he presents the reader at the end of his book. Live well. Like so many good questions, the answering involves first asking and answering more questions. Clarity is, after all, gained through a series of questions and answers, trial and error, mistakes and missteps that lead along the way to a deeper sense of our own authentic knowing. In Taking Stock, Doc says, but when a person is diagnosed with a terminal illness and death goes from a feared possibility to a certainty, something remarkable frequently happens. Often those self-protective stories about identity, work, and money crumble, leaving a person with a great clarity about who they are, what they love, and what really matters. The certainty of death removes the fears and barriers that have paralyzed us from asking Asking the important questions. There is no time left to hesitate. What are those questions? Who do I want to be? What do I value? How important is money and what am I willing to sacrifice for it? What would I want to do even if I weren't getting paid to do it? When do I feel most at peace, most myself? And what do I want to accomplish on this earth before I die and what is keeping me from doing it now? Yes, once we get past the fear and grief that cause us to avoid thought and conversation around the topic of death, we allow it to become one of our best teachers by asking, how do I use death to guide me toward building a life well lived? Often the best way to go beyond uncomfortable emotions like the fear of grief associated with our ideas about dying is to simply allow them without judgment, to understand that these uncomfortable emotions can exist, they do exist, at the very same time as the exciting emotions we hold for an enthusiastic look at all the possibilities for our future. Both can be present at once, fear and anticipation, grief and relief, sorrow and joy. It is not either or, it is both, and by merely allowing it all to be, you may find the discomfort relax and release. In its place can enter clarity and peace about what's truly meant for you in this life and what isn't. May you get a little clearer today, friends, knowing that what we often spend much of our time worrying and working over isn't at all what we'd find important if we knew the limit of our days. May you take some time to ask yourself the deeper questions, allowing plenty of space and silence for your own truth to rise to the surface. And in doing so, may you free yourself of the distractions and illusions of daily life, one small choice at a time, to build a life much more aligned to the authentic callings of your soul, a life well lived. Finally, may the wonder of that life well lived, your life, shine on your face, illuminating and inspiring others to do so in the process. And as always, much love to you, today and every day. <laughs>